The scripture this morning is Genesis chapter 37, 12 through 36. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our own hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Thanks, Johanna. You read the, this dreamer exactly how I read it in my head. Little spice. I, I, did you guys pick up on that? There's, who is this dreamer? After four weeks away from Genesis, I'm eager to dive back in. Before I do, though, I have three, three quick notes for you all. First, on behalf of my family, thanks Thanks for freeing us up to go on va- vacation. It was a good time of slowing down and a little bit of road tripping and a bunch of staycationing. It's good to go and it's good to be back. Second, I want to publicly and enthusiastically thank the, the elders, Kyle, John, and Grant, for doing such an excellent job in preaching. I, I really appreciate uh, Kyle and if you know Kyle at all, the fact that he's fighting with us through the Psalms 
to conform his feelings to his beliefs. That's why he preaches from the Psalms each time. I love that. Again, knowing Kyle, it's especially special. Uh, that was helpful to me. And John, in his grasp of biblical theology, how the whole story of the Bible comes to bear in any particular passage, I loved hearing that as well. And in Grant, his brain, at least in this sermon, worked a lot like mine, just pulling out the clear promises of God, each each plainly in the text and helping us to see them and, and how they're helpful for us. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but in a church our size, it is a serious and unusual joy to have such capable laymen able to preach and eager to preach and willing to preach when the pastors aren't there. So don't take that lightly, Grace. It's a gift from God. Thank thank these men for their care for you and their heralding of the word to all of us. And thanks to Pastor Mike as well uh, for attending to dozens of things while, while I was out. He too is a gift. Here's a third one. Uh, if you were here on Father's Day, you heard a sermon on joy. What does the Bible have to say about joy? And perhaps overwhelmingly, I gave you 14 joy principles from the Bible. I don't know what my record is for number of points in a sermon, but that's got to be near it. I'm going to give you a 15th right now. Super quick. I can't believe I didn't include that, but here it is. It's critical. The kind of joy that is ours in Jesus and lasts forever that kind of joy has to be shared. That's the 15th principle. I didn't, didn't include that. That's the 15th one. The primary commission on our lives as Christians in our love for God and people is to share our unshakable joy in Christ with the whole world. Now, if you're going to hang on to one part of the 15th point of the sermon from a month ago, here it is. Joy in Christ that is not shared is not truly joy in Christ. you, you got to get that. Joy in Christ that is not shared is not truly joy in Christ. One of the most telltale signs of genuine Christian joy, rather than you just like these people or, or you like thinking about God, godly things. or I mean, there's ways to be happy in church that have nothing really to do with God. God can be a hobby. Bible study can be a hobby. You, you can enjoy it without it truly being honoring to God. Even arguing with non-Christians or debating in apologetics, that can be a joy apart from honoring God. But one of the most telltale signs of genuine Christian joy is the inability to keep that joy to yourself. Share it, Grace. There it is. The 15th joy principle. Uh, Okay, well, back to Genesis. If you're just joining us, I don't know how many times I've done this, But when you preach through a book over the length of time we've been working through Genesis, we regularly need to zoom back up, get the big picture really quick in order to make the most sense of the particular passage. Hopefully you remember this. If you've been here from the beginning, I bet this is the 10th, 11th, 12th time I've said the same thing. It was Genesis as a whole was most likely given to the Israelites. Remember, God called Abraham out and he said, I'm going to bless you with a land and a people. It's going to be unbelievable, more than the stars in the heavens and the sand on the earth. Well, this Genesis was most likely given to the fulfillment of that. This huge, massive group of Israelites, descendants of Abraham, many years after Abraham, of course, as they sat on the edge of the promised land. So the people were there and they were about to take the land. It was written and compiled by Moses and it was meant to answer questions that they had to be asking. If you've 
if you've read the Old Testament, you know it, it oftentimes didn't take long. You think, how do they forget this stuff? This is unbelievable. Do you remember? It was one generation removed. They had forgotten the law, and then they found it, and they read it beginning to end and were amazed by it. So they needed this. We need this. Here's, here are the kinds of questions Genesis was meant to answer. This group of people, this massive group of people on the edge of this land, who are we? How did we get to be a people? How did we get to be here? Who is our God? What does he want from us? In short, it's meant to answer the question, and you can see it again now that we have a new bulb. You can see it down here in the bottom. What is our place in God's plan? Well, the first 11 chapters answer these questions way, way up high. It tells the story of the creating and the ordering of the whole world. So if you're new to Genesis, chapters 1 through 11 are the story of the creating and ordering of the, the whole world. And then chapters 12 through the end, through 50, are the story of the creating and the ordering of one particular family, the family of Abraham, one man and his offspring and God's special covenant promises with them. Okay, well, we've made our way all the way from chapter 1 to 37. The last time I preached was the first half of 37. And in that, we began considering the story of Joseph. Remember who he was in, in this bigger story? He was one of Abraham's 12 great-grandsons. Abraham had 12 great-grandsons through, through Jacob or Israel. And this was the favorite. Jacob was the favorite, or Joseph was the favorite of his father, Jacob. Abraham's one of his 12 great-grandsons through Jacob and Jacob's favorite. In addition to being set apart by his father with particular kindness and affection and a special coat, God set him apart by giving him a couple of dreams. God gave Joseph two dreams in particular, and the dreams, at least as we're told, were said that Joseph, although second from the youngest, would rule over all of them, including his parents. That was the first half of chapter 30. Seven. His brothers hated him for it. His dad rebuked him for it. No one quite understood. No one seemed real happy about it. And, and all of that is the backdrop. Sort of have all that in your mind as we come to this last portion of chapter 37. Let's pray and then dive in. God, this is all by itself, just even taken out of the Bible and and just a short story. This is quite a story. This is this is quite a passage. The, the things that happen here have great intrigue and drama and sadness and curiosity, and it's just quite a story. But God, we we thank you that this is a story within a larger story within the largest story. That this in and of itself has things for us, but, but mostly as a part of the grand story of you calling a people to yourself. Through Abraham and his descendants, ultimately through Jesus Christ. This is, a, this is a, a, another step on the way to Jesus. I pray that we would see that plainly. I pray, God, that you would help us in this to see your greatness and your glory I pray that you would help us to see that you work in different ways at different times for different reasons, but all ultimately to get the most glory for yourself and the most good for your people. 
I pray that we would see that, but rarely is it more explicit than it is in this text, at least as this text is interpreted for us. So I pray that we would see your great glory, even in the subtleness with which you show up in this passage. But I pray as well something less enjoyable. I pray, God, that you would give us a fresh look on our own sin and the way that it works in us and through us and around us. I pray that you'd give us a fresh look at what we ought to do when we find sinful temptations in our heart. And I pray that you would help us to see even a little bit more what to do when we find people around us engaged in injustice and evil. This passage puts these things on display, and your word tells us what to make of them. I pray that you would help us in these ways and more. In Jesus' name, amen. So I imagine if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, this passage, this story is at least somewhat familiar to you. It's fairly famous. It it unfolds in two main scenes. The first one is pretty quick. It's Joseph being sent by his father to check in on his brothers as they pastored, uh, as they as they shepherded the family flock. The second scene, the second main scene, is uh, <laughs> Joseph's brothers. They plot and they execute a plan to get rid of Joseph and his dreams. Joseph is portrayed here in both scenes as quietly faithful. He's a silent victim. His brothers, on the other hand, are portrayed as entirely selfish, devious, malicious, ungodly. And in the larger story that this is a part of, God is portrayed as quietly working through it all. With both Joseph and God being mostly in the background in this passage, here are the two main points. If you're going to write anything down, write these two things down. God is always at work. Remember this, because this is true of us too. You felt this. I felt this. God is always at work, even when his work is undetectable to the eyes of our head. God is always at work, even when his work is undetectable to the eyes of our head. And second, through the actions of Joseph brothers, here's the second main point. Heart sin, the sin that exists in our hearts, particularly the appetite for ungodly things. Heart sin, grace. Heart sin, unchecked, will always eventually lead to sin of the body. Sin of the heart, sin of the mind, will always eventually lead to sins of the flesh. It'll work out. It'll start in unchecked. It always works out. Those are the two main points that I think you'll see in this passage, as we continue to work through God's unstoppable plan to redeem a people for himself. So let's turn our attention to the text now as we see these things and what they mean for us. First scene, opening scene, Joseph's brothers are, are out taking care of the family flock. We're left wondering why wasn't Joseph with them? Seems a little odd. Was it because their father was favoring him, giving him an easier job or protecting him because he knew about the hatred and animosity that they had towards Joseph? We we don't know. It's curious. We don't know why exactly. But what we do know is that the brothers were out tending the flock and Joseph was not among them. Presumably they'd been gone for some time. It seems longer than expected for their father began to worry about them to assuage his concerns, to make sure they were okay and everything was all set, he sent Jacob, or Israel as he is called, 
sent Joseph to check up on them. If you know anything about shepherding, which I know very little, you know that they moved to where the flocks and the food took them. This always meant some measure of unpredictability and occasionally meant moving over a great deal of land to find the right pasture and water. For these reasons, it took Joseph some time and some help from a stranger to find them. Eventually, though, acting on the advice of the stranger, the text tells us that Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. We're left wondering at the end of this scene, what condition would he find them in? Remember, that's why their father, their father, or his father sent him out to make sure they were okay. What condition would they be in? And as we'll see, the more important question is, how would they receive him once he found them? And that leads us to the second scene. It's made up of six quick snapshots. It's one scene, just bang, 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 six, six quick times. The first of which starts when Joseph is, is making his way towards this particular city where he's heard his brothers are, and they catch him. They, they see him from a long distance off. The first snapshot of the last scene starts when Joseph's brothers see him from a distance and begin to concoct a plan to do him harm. Listen again to the text, verse 18. They saw him from afar. You picture him walking. He's, he's not sure where they are yet, maybe, but they see him. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Far away from home and from the watchful and protective eye of their father, the brothers believed themselves to be free to act on their jealousy and hatred. Given the amount of disdain that we've already seen they have for him, the text says Joseph's brothers had for him, it was only a matter of opportunity and time before they acted on their sinful heart's desires. You you just can't harbor the kind of hatred and jealousy and animosity. It says they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. You can't allow that to fester inside of you without eventually it working out. Well, here we go. Far away from home, far away from their their father's watchful eye. The only question seemed to be when would they act on this and how? Given the opportunity then, we just can't be surprised that they did. And here's what we need to consider. Grace, on a practical level, think of your sin. Draw to mind a a particular ongoing temptation or struggle that is yours in the way of sin. Isn't this how it usually works? What I mean is, don't we often find that sin lays crouching when normal protections are in place, whatever those normal protections are, only to pounce at a time of least resistance? Isn't it in your life and in mine when we're most tired or most alone or most discouraged or most sure of ourselves that we're most vulnerable of this from Joseph's brothers who give us such a clear picture of this? We do well to learn two lessons. I told you two main points. One is that even when we can't see it, God is always at work. And secondly, left unchecked, sins of the heart will always work themselves out. We're going to see this in a number of ways. Two particular right here. First, means this means two things. First, to take seriously the battle. I, I read from Ephesians earlier, uh, the putting on the whole armor of God as a part of wrestling against flesh, not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and powers, the sin in us and the sin outside of us. If we're to take that seriously, the battle against sin, to take it seriously is to know your weaknesses. If you haven't identified the particular sins you struggle with and the particular weaknesses that allow you to give in to them, you are not taking your battle against sin seriously. If you tend to fall into the same sins in the same ways, do your best to avoid those ways, Grace. That's what it means to make no provision for the flesh. Until Jesus returns, we're always going to battle our flesh, the sinful temptations inside of us. But to make no provision of it means when you know you have particular sins that tend to be unleashed in particular ways, avoid those ways. Have an accountability partner. Avoid being alone or alone with someone you know is a temptation to you. Get an internet filter. Go to bed early, earlier. Post promises of God around your house and car and wherever you are that you might give in to sin. Do what you need to do to keep yourself from acting on your sinful desires. That's the first thing that I want you to see from this. The brothers had it in their minds. They they had it in their hearts. And it seems on some level, proximity to their father held that at bay. But by going out and going away from him, the door opened. But here's the second thing, and by far the more important thing that we need to learn from this. The sinful desires of our hearts are the biggest issue, not just the opportunity to act on them. The actual desires of our hearts that we're trying to hold at bay is the biggest issue. It's good to cut off the means for our sin as much as possible, but far more significantly for Christians is cutting off the appetite for sin. The real problem isn't that eventually you have the opportunity to act on it. The real problem is that that messed up appetite is inside us, that that God-dishonoring appetite lives in us, that we desire evil. It, It might not always look like evil in our appetite, but anything that is opposed to the will of God is is evil and deadly and destructive. That's the biggest issue. It is good to cut off the means as much as possible, but far more important is cutting off our appetite. This is what the Bible calls it. What we said a minute ago is, Make no provision for the flesh. Here, the Bible says to mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's different. It's one thing to hold them at bay. It's another thing to kill them. Holding sin at bay, which again is good, is not the ultimate goal of the Christian, and it certainly wasn't the ultimate purpose of the cross. To be like Jesus is to have no appetite for sin. It's not just to not act on it. It's to not even desire it. This is, I'm going to give you a sentence that was one of the most important things I think I've ever learned on the other side of the gospel. That's what heaven will be like, by the way, is not having any more appetite for sin. But here's, here's the thing that I think for me in my battle against sin is one of the most important things I've ever learned. Almost all of the same things, almost all of the same things that you and I turn to in sin today will be in heaven. Think about that for a minute. Almost all of the same things that you and I turn to in sin today will be present in in heaven. What we'll be missing, though, is our sinful desires for those things. That's the difference. Most of the things won't be gone. Our appetite, our wrong appetite for them will be gone. That's a big deal. Joseph's brothers sinned by allowing jealousy into their hearts. They sinned even more by allowing it to remain and fester over time. Worse yet, as we see here, they sinned further by allowing their heart's sin 
to begin to turn towards body sin, sins of the flesh, to act on it rather than to just think about it. And worse still, before they even had acted on it, they already began to plot the cover up for it. I mean, that's, that's messed up. It's a good thing none of us have ever done any of those things, right? If we allow sinful thoughts to linger in our minds, they will certainly eventually make their way out of us. you got to get that, Grace. If you are to take seriously our fighter verse for this week, to take seriously the, the making no provision for the flesh, or more importantly, the, the mortification or the killing of the sin that lives in us, to destroy our very appetite by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what the cross was for. If we're to do that, we need to understand these things. That's the first snapshot, the plan. Here's the second one, the resistance. There had to be, you think, here's this plan, it's wicked, it's diabolical. You'd have to think there'd be at least one of this group of brothers that would say, wait a minute, that might not be the best idea, right? Well, it seems that there was. We don't know whether it was for his own sake. We have a hint in the way he responds later. But whether for his own sake, and how could this be for his own sake, the oldest brother would have been particularly responsible for the rest. We, we see that later as they go back to Egypt. But the oldest brother would have been particularly responsible. So whether it was for his own sake or for Joseph's or maybe some combination, we don't know. But what we do know is that verse 21, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And he said that, sort of parenthetically, the text tells us, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him later to their father. For that, I don't know how many of time I've said this, said this again. We need to be careful not to moralize narrative. This passage tells us what was, not necessarily what ought to have been. It is not, it was not intended to be a three-step recipe for Christian resistance. And yet there are things we can learn from this. It puts on display what other parts of the Bible tell us explicitly. It gives us a picture of some of the principles we learn elsewhere. Two in particular, again, that I want you to get. Again, two main points. In this passage, sins of the mind and of the heart eventually are going to work their way out if we don't address them as God has called us to. And secondly, God is always at work. And we see both here. Listen to Second listen to Timothy 3. But understand this. Understand this. This is to the church. This is a principle we learned today that is on display back then, even though they didn't understand it as much as we do. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Picture, picture Joseph and his brothers and the scene. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What do you do? Text tells us to avoid such people. So here Reuben finds himself in the midst of brothers, and, and we know in some ways among them, Christian, here's the thing, the first thing we need to see from this. We cannot be indifferent to or associate with acts of injustice and evil in others. There's a million ways in which this plays out. This is a whole other sermon. But Christians cannot be indifferent to or associate with acts of injustice and evil in others. That's the first thing to see. The second thing is, well, what do we do about it? 
We need to be both innocent and wise in our handling of the injustices we encounter. Jesus said to his followers, Behold, I am standing, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This passage, again, doesn't teach this, but it gives a picture of what it might look like. This does not mean that every Christian is responsible for every sin of everyone else everywhere. But it does mean that we do need to do what we can to battle whatever evils or injustices in us and in our presence, in our own hearts, and around us, where we find it. We cannot be indifferent to that. Sometimes wisdom calls for a full frontal assault. There are some types of sins that are so egregious and dangerous and deadly that we need to give it a full frontal assault. But other times, as perhaps was the case here, it might mean, might mean taking a more strategic approach. Wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. Reuben seems to have threaded this needle fairly well. Wise as a serpent and realizing a full frontal assault probably wasn't going to work, or he might have ended up in the pit too. Innocent as a dove. Coming up with a plan that allowed his brother to be saved. Strategically, Sometimes wisdom calls for a full frontal assault. Other times, as was the case here, it might mean taking a more strategic approach. Seems to have worked. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Here's the third snapshot of the final scene. It's a reassessment. They sat down to eat, looking. They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to their brother, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our flesh. And his brothers listened to him, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Consider the callousness of these these brothers, these men, these people of the promise and covenant of God. They sat down to eat while their brother was next to them in a pit. We learn later in Genesis from 42, chapter 42, doesn't tell us here, Joseph just seems entirely silent here, but we learn from chapter 42 that he was begging them at this time. He was pleading with them to release him. At first they imagined a, a wild animal. These brothers imagined putting him in a pit and a wild animal devouring him. But here we find out that they were the devour, devour, devourers both literally and figuratively. They sat there and and ate as their brother cried out to them. Initially, the brother's hateful, jealous plan was to kill him in order to gain by getting rid of the one who had their father's blessing and who claimed he would rule over them. But the kind of heart that allows these kinds of feelings to remain and grow will never be content. Simply getting rid of Joseph certainly wasn't enough when they had a chance to make some money off of him too. It wasn't just getting rid of them anymore. It was getting rid of them and getting paid to do it. Again, Grace, this this goes to show how unchecked sin, (laughs) unchecked sin in our heart, always leads to greater and greater sin in the flesh. Grace, what sins do you have that you are allowing to take root in you, that you have allowed to fester, that you know that are there, and, and maybe you've taken some steps to hold them at bay, but you haven't yet taken steps to kill them? What heart sins are you currently tolerating? Maybe they haven't worked themselves out just yet, but with an ever-increasing appetite, they will eventually. Here's the cover-up. The fourth snapshot, 
Somehow it seems Reuben, who initially had the plan to save Joseph, he missed this new plan and, and its execution. Verse 29 says, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? From what we're told at this point, he remained largely innocent. Nevertheless, the deed was done, and therefore, another plan needed to be set up. Because they were far from home, getting rid of Joseph proved fairly easy. But now the attention needed to turn to the cover-up, which would be trickier. They'd already begun to discuss this, but now they needed to get their ducks in a row. They, they needed to figure out how they were going to explain things to their father. Verse 31. So they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And when they sent the robe, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, It is. It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. We're not told here why Reuben remained silent at this point, but evidently it did, he did. Kind of makes us wonder at the beginning if he was not actually thinking of Joseph, but himself and the trouble he might get into as the one mainly charged to care for him. But eventually it tells us he too succumbed to the treachery of his brothers. He helped prevent Joseph's murder, and that was good. And he was not a part, it seems, of his being sold into slavery. But here he was, passively at least, a part of the cover-up. In this we're given another glimpse into the anatomy of sin, how it works to destroy The very first proverb written by Solomon, who came years after in the line of Abraham. It's hard to believe Solomon didn't have this particular story in mind when he wrote Proverbs 1, 10 through 16. My son, he said, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If sinners entice you, do not consent. Just listen to all the ways this proverb parallels this passage in Genesis. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Is that not what they did? Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Is that not what happened? Like shale, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. (laughs) My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Grace, the famous line is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You might hold it off a few times, but if you allow it to continue to fester, eventually it will kill. Notice as well, once again, there's no evidence that Joseph antagonized his brothers. Someone said, I don't remember which of you it was, but someone came up to me after uh, the the beginning of Genesis 37 and said, is there anyone in the Old Testament who shows themselves as consistently blameless is Joseph. I don't know if there is, but at least in this passage, there's no evidence that he antagonized his brothers. He did things they didn't like, but there's no evidence it was sinful or malicious. Living as God calls grace does not mean that everything will go well for us. In fact, the Bible promises the exact opposite. In a world that is inherently hostile to God, we should not be surprised when following Jesus I'm sorry, when when living in a world is inherently hostile to God as this is, we should be surprised when following Jesus leads to favor, not persecution. Here's the fifth snapshot. As any good father would, 
Joseph or Jacob was filled with grief. The text tells us in verse 34, Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins. This was a, an old way to express grief and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters, which means daughters-in-law probably, rose up and comforted him. For he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Well, Jacob's actions were understandable. Do you see how further detestable it is the brother's actions are? Did you pick up on that, Grace? Just think of what the brothers just did in this. Jacob's actions, his fathers are understandable. Look at what the brothers did. That they rose up to comfort him is to take their sin to yet another level, the most diabolical of all. It was to make a mockery of their father's grief. The very ones who had perpetrated this evil were pretending to be sorry for it, to pretending to be sad with their father. There's more irony here, though. Do you get it already as well? The irony here is that Jacob, the father, was a deceiver himself. Remember? <laughs> he, he himself deceived his own brother and his own father, and here was being deceived by his sons. It's unfortunately, again, often how things work. The sins of the parents are learned by the children. Here's the last, uh, last snapshot. This scene and chapter close with one final glimpse of what's going on. One simple note that if you don't know the whole of the story of Genesis, isn't going to mean much, but we do. It says this, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Grace, in the simple, subtle line, we see the first point of the sermon. We've seen many different ways. The second point, sins of the heart left unchecked always eventually lead out. Here we see the, sec- or the first point. God is always at work even when his work is undetectable. God is not mentioned once here. God isn't mentioned once in this passage. And yet his steering and directing, Grace, his steering and directing is unmistakable for anyone who knows how the story goes. God was not sitting up in heaven. Picture this. What's going on with God here? You got to come to grips with this. You have to come to terms with how God relates to evil how God relates to sin, how God relates to the difficulties we experience day in and day out. And so the the question was, was he sitting up in heaven, passively hoping Joseph would make it? Passively hoping that his brothers would realize the error of their ways and and just make the right choice? Was Was he sitting up there scheming ways he could take this unexpected event and turn it around? This, this detour, could, could, he, could he get around this detour to what his real plan was? Was he up in heaven crossing his fingers that somehow he, he knew Joseph needed to end up in Egypt, but was he crossing his fingers that somehow that would be the case in order that God could keep his covenant promises to his people? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. The main point of Genesis is that God was continually and perfectly, even if undetectably at times, working out his perfect plan of redemption through the line of Abraham all the way to Jesus. We know this for certain because of how this very story ends. The Bible tells us explicitly that that was the case. In the final chapter of Genesis, we'll get there eventually, Joseph and his brothers will be reunited on the other side of all of this 
And to them, Joseph would declare of this exact event, as for you, you meant evil against me. You made real choices. They were sinful choices to do evil against me. That's the title of the sermon, intended for evil. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Such as the cross of Christ. Those people who put him on the cross and condemned him and crucified him truly made real choices that were evil. What they meant for evil, though, God meant for good. This is a snapshot of that. Joseph's brothers made real choices to do real evil. But God was actively working through these real choices to accomplish a real and spectacular good. In ways that are mysterious to us, two wills were working at the same time. The brothers who intended evil and gods who intended good. Here's my conclusion. In describing the continuation of the story of the people of God through Joseph, the two main points, once again, of this passage are that God is always at work, even when his work is undetectable. And second, unchecked sin of the heart always will lead to unchecked or always will lead to increasing sins of the body. We saw these the, the, the second through the actions of Joseph's brothers and the subtle commentary of the narrator, and the first in the way the story ends up, in the way that the narrator tells us why it ended up that way. Perhaps more importantly, however, again, we catch a glimpse of Jesus in this passage. You know, Grace, he too was sold for pieces of silver. He too was, he too descended, was, was put down in a pit at the hands of others. He too was brought up for the sake of others, that many should be kept alive, not just physically, but eternally. Our hope, like Joseph's, is not that we are able to do enough good or that we would ever choose God on our own, but that God mercifully and graciously chose Joseph and he chooses us and provides for us what we could never have provided for ourselves. He does for us what he requires of us, but we could never do ourselves the righteousness and sacrificial death of Jesus. So look to him today, Grace. Look to him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful gate. Grace? Face. Look full in his wonderful face. Grace. Look, look full into both. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, right? Remember that, Grace. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and turn from your sin. Look to Jesus and know that he is working now. We get a a fuller version of this promise. For God is at work to act into will according to his good purpose. Right? He is at work causing all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Right? That's what we see in part here. We see in full in Jesus.